This episode is brought to you by IVP. How do you practice presence in neglected places? In Church Forsaken, Jonathan Brooks challenges local churches to rediscover that loving our neighbors also means loving our neighborhoods. Based on Jeremiah 29, Church Forsaken shows how Christians can be holistically and practically present in our communities, building relationships and planting gardens for the common good. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive Church Forsaken for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 at IVPress.com. This is IVP. You have two choices if you're going to be a pastor who speaks into these types of things. You can either be a prophet to culture or you can be a chaplain for the empire. Those are your options. And I think what people have seen is pastors have been chaplains for the empire. And they have gotten close to power to benefit from. And this is in every ethnic group and every spiritual tradition. They've gotten close because of what can benefit them. Versus being prophets that say, this is what God says about the flourishing of neighbors. And because people haven't seen that, they now believe it's not possible. Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Chess. Today, we're going to hear from Tyler Burns about the role of pastors in the church and politics, the spiritual resources of charismatic churches, and the way that lament and grief could help us find another path forward from our political dysfunction. Tyler is a pastor, speaker, writer, and podcaster. He serves as lead pastor of All Nations Worship Assembly in Pensacola, Florida. He's also president of The Witness, a Black Christian collective, and hosts the organization's flagship podcast, Pass the Mic. He's shared his insights on faith and culture in The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Christianity Today, The Christian Post, and Religion News. He is married to Mylena and has two children, Trinity and Benaya. Tyler was the perfect person to talk to as we begin a season thinking together about how to spiritually prepare for an election season. His pastoral wisdom and prophetic witness are both a challenge and a gift to us. Thank you, Tyler, so much for doing this. I'm just really excited for so many reasons. One of them being that you and I share something in common that I don't often share with people, which is that we both went to Liberty University. And I feel like people ask me, I don't know if this is true of you, people ask me about that a lot just because they think it's kind Mm -hmm. of interesting or weird. Would you tell us just a little bit of your broader background than just the Liberty that doesn't define you, but kind of how you've ended up doing the work that you're doing, pastoring, also leading the witness, um, but kind of bringing us back to prior Tyler and kind of how you've ended up with the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's such a great question. As I was telling you before, I think a lot of us just don't want to admit uh, that we went to the university. So we don't. There are more of us than you would think. There's so many more of us and uh, we're everywhere, (laughs) by the way. Um, We made it out. We made it out. But (laughs) Um, So I was born and raised in Pensacola, Florida. So right on the tip of the panhandle. It's funny. I was thinking a a stat that I share that most people don't realize is that uh, Pensacola was in the Guinness Book of World Records for 
most churches per capita in any city in the world. Uh, I think it was like 2011, 2012. And so grew up in very much so entrenched uh, Bible area, Christian area. I went to a Christian private school. My father founded a church in 92. And uh, so I'm a PK. And so I'm trying to unlearn and relearn so many things from being a PK from my parents and actually had dreams and aspirations to be a, a sports broadcaster at first. And that kind of stayed pretty consistent even throughout my college years. Uh, but then at one point, I wanted to be a U.S. senator. And so when we talk about the pol political and the politics uh, implications and and all of those things, it it actually motivated me to to try to say, oh, maybe I could affect change here. And when I was 14 or 15, I volunteered for a local campaign, passing out flyers. And I saw a few things behind the scenes about local politics that made me say, you know what? I'm good. Uh, <laughs> not my calling. It was a lot, a lot more than what I expected going on behind the scenes. Uh, but I really got my call to ministry when I was 16 and we went to a youth conference in Tampa, ironically, at one of our then friends, Pastor Paula White's church. And yes, the the, the African angels lady. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The one who loves Donald Trump, all the above. And uh, someone else was speaking. And that last day, there was an altar call. And as typically happens in Pentecostal circles, you know, you kind of fall under the power of God or you're, you're on your knees um, under the power of God. And I remember I was, it was almost like I was totally out. Like I didn't, I don't remember anything. And uh, when I woke up, when I kind of came to, people were like, most people were gone. They were like vacuuming. You know, we had to drive back to Pensacola. So I'm like, why did y'all like, you know, wake me up or something? Like, oh, you were talking the whole time. You just kept saying, the only thing you kept saying was, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And when I came back, something in me completely shifted and changed to where I didn't want to acknowledge it, but my fire and fervor to communicate the gospel, to study God's word, um, to share the gospel with people who did not know, it just consumed me. It was totally different. And our, our elders and our board acknowledged even at 16 that there was a call of God on my life. And they said, we have to foster this. So I actually gave my first sermon when I was uh, 16, about probably eight nine months later, I think I gave him my first sermon and then they put me in the process, even though I didn't want to be a part of it. Uh, but then I transferred to Liberty for my last two years of college in 2008. So in 2008, that was actually my first semester at Liberty was the first Obama election. So there was all this subtext and there's so much we can get into about that. All the subtext of yeah, yeah. race and culture and even, even me being someone who was more on the conservative side of things back then, it was still just this overwhelming divide and me recognizing and seeing things that was shocking for me. But I didn't even really want to be a pastor even then, because I recognized how much it took and how much the responsibility was, what the responsibility was eternally. And so I was still trying to be a broadcaster, still trying to do that. And when I left Liberty, the Lord just kind of radically called me back home uh, to serve the local community. And I feel like I always say to this day, like I got tricked into actually finishing my ministerial training. And like, <laughs> I got tricked into it. Like, I feel like that's really, that's really part of the tradition. Yeah. Like, like literally gets like kidnapped. I think you're it's, in a good line That's there. exactly <laughs> it. Like, I feel like somebody just kidnapped me and said, you got to finish this. And I'm like, okay, yeah. cool. And so I was ordained at 21, zero out of 10 would not recommend. 
And uh, so I've been I've been pastoring for 14 years, lead pastor for four years at what's now called All Nations Worship Assembly in Pensacola in the heart of the city. Probably two years after I got ordained, I was at a conference and it was a conference in Atlanta. And I ran into this short guy who had some glasses and he was at a booth talking about Reformed Theological Seminary. And I was just looking at the booths. And this guy walks up to me. He's like, "Hey, uh, are you interested in going to reform, going to RTS?" I'm like, "I don't even know what reform means. I don't know." Like, <laughs> and uh, of course, that person was Dr. Jamar Tisby, now Dr. Jamar Tisby, who I host a podcast with. We talked for about an hour and a half that day, and he told me about this this thing, which was then called the Reformed African American Network. It's now called the Witness. And he said, man, I feel like we should work together on this thing. I feel like you don't even know who I am, that you had just met me. And he's like, man, no, nah, I can tell. I, I can tell it's just something about you, man. Like, we just got to work together. And so we stayed in touch, stayed in contact. And then in 2014, 2015, I joined the podcast, Past the Mic. And then in 2020, when Jamar transitioned out of his role as president, I transitioned in. And the work of The Witness was really a passion for me to see and to be in the rooms where the dialogue about what it means to be a Black Christian and what it means to be a part of what Jamar and I have coined as the expansive Black Christian tradition, what it means to be a part of that, and then what it means for us to live in light of that. And there are so many different implications from culture to politics, to justice, to the church, to theology, to academics. And we just wanted to be in those rooms. And then eventually we looked up and there were a lot of people who were following us and continuing the worst. I'm really excited to talk to you, Tyler, for many reasons, like I said, but especially because we're spending this season talking about spiritual, relational, communal preparation for an election season. And we really wanted to talk to a pastor. And now I know a pastor who thought about being a politician, which is even better. What role does a pastor have in the political life of the community that they're serving and especially of the of the people in their congregation how would you respond to that question if someone asked that maybe especially someone who because this happens a lot when i get asked this question it's someone who's considering training for ministry and they're just wondering like how should i begin thinking now about what role i will or should not or should have i don't feel qualified to answer that question <laughs> and you know it's funny if i were to poll even the pastors i disagree with i think all of us would probably feel a little overwhelmed by the idea of our influence from the pulpit to political life and culture. A lot of my context and the history of Black, being a Black pastor, a Black minister, shapes the way in which I view this particular consideration. So a lot of people have seen bad models and the bad models haven't been bad because they've disagreed with what I think. That's how I'm saying they're bad models, but they have not understood their power and they have influence people with how they should think versus how to think well and deeply based upon their own convictions. And in the in the Black community, though, we grew up, and, and even in the early days of what people know as the Black church, the Black church was the epicenter of Black society, just based upon the fact that we were a people in exile. And so being a people in exile, it was just you had to find a place of meaning, of dignity, of worth, of value. And the Black church was that place. And so for us, I think we grew up in early Black Christian 
thought in the American context was always the pastor was not just simply the pastor on Sunday who preached a discernment or who gave spiritual thoughts and wisdom. No, the pastor was the one who was sometimes an advocate and sometimes the spiritual guide for, he was the coach and he was, he was the center of society. He was the person who was the lawyer. He was the person, not because he was trained, but because they needed someone that they could trust to help them navigate life. And also the pastor in many cases was someone who wasn't just involved in political office, but also ran for political office. So you take historic uh, Emmanuel AME church in Charleston, you take that massacre the pastor of that church was Clementa Pinckney, who was involved, who was an elected official. You take people like Floyd Flake, you take people um, like Dr. Raphael Warnock, you take all these people are, are directly involved in politics. It was not foreign to us for us to get involved. Now, I'm, you know, you can have different thoughts about whether or not pastors should be actively pastors and also politicians, but I'm trying to show and, and signify that there was this context and there was this uh, me mentality of we are involved in life and we're involved in all of life. And there's not a separation between the political and the faith base. So I'll give you this example of how deep this is within our community broadly. We had a forum locally that I was invited to be a part of that was an interfaith forum on Black community concerns locally. And up until recently, up until like a year, year and a half ago, I was the youngest lead pastor in the city, regardless of race or ethnic group. So, you know, I'm the young guy. I'm used to getting the calls of, hey, let's get the young guy out here. But especially within the Black community, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, let's get the young guy out here. You can speak millennial and Gen Z. So, like, let's get you to come here. And so it was an interface forum that had all kinds of different people at the table. So it had leaders from the Black Hebrew Israelite movement, which militant, radical, often misogynistic, xenophobic, the Nation of Islam, um, a couple of other Christian pastors, a Yoruba priestess or someone who's act actively past, actively practicing um, African spirituality and voodoo and things of that nature. And everyone's sitting around this table and having this forum in front of people about how do we consider things like money and family and politics and social issues and justice and one of the most fascinating things, Caitlin, is there were people there that I so strongly disagree with, but there was a better charity around that table than a lot of the evangelical tables I've been at talking about race, justice, and politics. And then beyond that, nobody at the table thought that their faith and their politics were separated. Nobody mm -hmm. thought, oh, this is not really much of a concern. You know what? We can just think like there were some people who said it's maybe not as much as we make it, but everybody was like, we have to have some involvement in this or even creating our own system or even that the involvement in life and the involvement in the core concerns of the people that we're trying to lead directly matters before we can actually look at them and say, Here's our doctrine. Here's our spiritual plan. Here's our spiritual mentality. It was directly related. And it and it's so deep in our community that whenever I hear pastors say, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be political. I'm like, how do you touch the people that you preach to? Because for us, I mean, right outside of, of here where I'm recording at, you know, we we just moved to this place in town as a church. 
and it's a high traffic area. So you have a housing project on one side, a senior manor on another side, gentrify across the street, they're gentrifying. So they got a doggy, doggy daycare and some, and some stuff across from the housing project. It's like, what? This doesn't make any sense. But the core concerns of how we show up as believers cannot just simply be come to our church on Sunday. We have to figure out what is going to be good for the flourishing of the city. And how are we going to actually use where we're positioned and planted to actually promote wholeness and shalom and justice and equity and really the kingdom of God coming down to earth? So whenever people are saying they feel a little concerned, I'm like, yeah, because you have two choices if you're going to be a pastor who speaks into these types of things. You can either be a prophet to culture or you can be a chaplain for the empire. Mm. Those are your options. And I think what people have seen is pastors have been chaplains for yes. the empire. And they have gotten yes. close to power to benefit from. And this is in every ethnic group, in every spiritual tradition. They've gotten close because of what can benefit them versus being mm -hmm. prophets that say, this is what God says about the flourishing of neighbors. And because people haven't seen that, they now believe it's not possible. And so it's our job to steward that influence well. Um, but also to show people, no, there's a, there's a way in which we can do that. And there's a way in which it can be done from a healthy perspective um, that actually promotes what God desires. Somewhere in Reading Well Black, Issa McCauley has this line about basically the Black church is birthed in a context in which there's no ability to separate those things. So you can't kind of have the 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 view of the world and people's lives that many white churches have. I'm also interested, Tyler, in hearing you talk about what maybe you think some of the gifts of your particular tradition are, um, not just the Black church kind of broadly conceived in America, but especially charismatic churches. Um, it's funny, you said earlier the thing about Paula White and like sure, the angels yeah. from Africa. They're coming, they're coming, they're still coming. The kind of, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, the popular narrative right now about charismatic churches is that they are white evangelical churches that are really passionate about Donald Trump. And there's a whole lot that I'm sure you and other people could say about kind of the various streams yes. of that tradition and like the racial history there. Um, and if you want to get into that, you're totally welcome to. But I'm also just curious, I think people can kind of put too much weight on the very nature of a charismatic church as being the the reason for this political approach to the world. Like, oh, of course, you know, if you're more charismatic, you're going to be pulled into conspiracy theories, or of course, you're going to be politically conservative. And I'm just curious how you would both describe that particular relationship from the tradition that you're coming from, but also what maybe some gifts are like to the rest of the church for your tradition to offer us, especially when it comes to our political life? That's such a good question. So I never talk about other people's tradition without first critiquing my own. And yes, in the Pentecostal space and charismatic space, first, there's a complete, it's, it's when you say that, when people say the Pentecostal church or the charismatic, it's much in the same way people say the black church. What do you mean when you say that? Because there are endless streams. There's Church of God and Assemblies of God and Kojic and PAW and Full Gospel and non -deni There's so many different streams of these particular that particular movement that it's really hard to summarize. But for sure, there have been people who have overemphasized an emotional experience to the point of leaning into an anti-intellectual um, view of the world and scripture, also leaning into conspiracy theories and 
um, the activity of Satan everywhere, the activity of God everywhere. I mean, all kinds of things. But one of the things that has been really helpful for me is it is presupposed whenever we come into church that when we leave, we are sent. It's not that we, we leave to go into society to hide and come back. We are sent, which means that we are going into society to represent Jesus. So the, from a young age, I was taught wherever you are, the power of the Spirit has placed upon you the, the call to represent Jesus well in your interactions with people. And so the representation aspect, while again, it can sometimes be strange for those who are outsiders, is actually a great gateway into helpfully handling a political representation or a healthy political process or a healthy view of how to disagree or things of that nature, because we know we're representing Jesus and we know that the spirit of God has empowered us to do that. Um, I think also it, uniquely in my tradition, James K.A. Smith, which people don't realize this, he wrote this incredible book called Thinking in Tongues. And it's all about the uh, Pentecostal theologies, uh, Pentecostal theological um, contribution to Christian philosophy is absolutely incredible. Blows people's mind when they read it. But there is a, there's a lot of Pentecostal scholarship. I know people don't think that. People are like ah, they just shooting from the hip and everything. It's like no, we have we have yeah, scholars yeah. and systematic theology books and things. You know, I just you know, it's just something that people don't really understand. But he talks about even the ways in which speaking in tongues in a Pentecostal context is actually a way to communicate outside of the powers. So the powers that be, it actually is God saying, my spirit gives power outside of those who are in power. So it's actually like an act of wow. political resistance. When we speak in tongues, it's actually an act of political resistance that says, we do not allow those in power to shape and change our language, but our language belongs to the spirit. And when he said that, it blew my mind, but it's also the nature of which how we think internally that if we come together and unify, the world can be changed. Now, there's a, there's a negative to that, right? And we've seen that in 2016 and others. But the positive is flourishing and wholeness and shalom and peace and equity and justice are possible if we come together and we are on one accord. And there's nothing that we can imagine that God intends to do that cannot be actualized and realized in the earth if there are people who bear the spirit of God and work together to accomplish the will of God on the earth as it is in heaven. And so that's always been something we've believed. And I think finally, there's this determination that we have. It's weird sometimes. Sometimes I just, you know, I'm like, what are, what are y'all talking about? There's this determination though. There is no conceivable reality. And this is what really kept me when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Nothing catches God by surprise, but beyond nothing catching God by surprise, there is no scheme or no plan of negativity, whether you believe in his politics or not, it created a mass division. But there's this determination that if we pray and if we believe, there is no scheme of division or confusion or chaos that can win against God. There's this huge big God theology that we have that affects and says, 
even to the point of being unhealthy. See, this is why sometimes we we need these perspectives because yes, it seems to be spiritual bypassing when someone comes in and says, yes, I know you see all these dead black bodies in the street, these hashtags, but greater is he that's on the inside of us than he that is in the world. So that seems like spiritual bypassing. And so you say, yeah, we might not need to say that now. We might need to grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. But then there's another element to that, which says, don't let yourself devolve into hopelessness because your God is still your God. And for us, those of us, especially who are fighting for justice and trying to see an equitable world where where people and neighbors can flourish, this idea of, of a big God theology, God always being God, is powerful fuel for the work. And it's powerful fuel to understand that even if your people don't get elected, even if your party, your chosen party platform loses, even if the worst possible outcome happens in Capitol Hill, there is one greater. And as much as people think sometimes that spiritual bypassing, it's also really helpful context for those of us who have decided not to put our faith in chariots and horses and tanks and political uh, positions to say, hey, God is greater than even our political losses. So those things have been helpful for me from my tradition. And I, they're, they're actually things I used to despise. Uh, but now are things that I embrace and feel like people can actually learn from. Oh, I'm so glad I asked that because those are, those were so great. And I, it's funny. I sometimes I'll hear people who have very good reason for thinking exactly what you were just describing of like, oh, this truth, the resurrection of the body, the sovereignty of God, that just encourages political passivity. Because if you just mm. kind of give that as sort of like a, you know, pithy statement, a platitude in response to something. And that's true that if it's used in the wrong way or to motivate the wrong thing, it is really harmful. But I also just feel like when I, especially as I've been reading more diverse voices throughout American history, I'm just like, I don't know. It, in practice, it actually has motivated a lot of really positive work to go, actually, if I really truly believe that this body will be resurrected and all things will be made right, it actually frees me up to do a lot of good that isn't so contained to just like the terms as the world has set. Christians often say that they want to pursue racial reconciliation, but they don't always know the right ways to do so. What if a helpful way to move forward is actually to look back? In his third book, All God's Children, author Terrence Lester examines his own personal struggles as a Black man in the U.S., and reveals new insights that can help the church in our ongoing conversation about race. You'll be moved by his story and inspired to follow his example to show solidarity, advocacy, and friendship to others, even when it's hard to do so. Stay tuned to find out more about how you can get a 25% discount on All God's Children at ivypress.com. Especially I like the last thing you said about these things that I despised in my tradition and now that, that, you know, how much you appreciate them. One of the things that we're also kind of talking about this season is thinking about the kind of internal work that we have to do to be faithful in the world. The last few seasons of the podcast talked about disrupting the world and disrupting the church. And we kind of said like, well, what's the thing we want to be disrupting this season? And we thought ourselves, like, how can we not just think externally about what needs to change in the church, which is important, and what really needs to change in the world or the political system, which is also important, but how do I be the kind of person that can do that well and not lose my soul and not end up, you know, 
having been corrupted and twisted in such a way that I don't even realize that I'm no longer the person who can do it well. And I feel like some of that is what you just described of the ability to accept certain things from the tradition that I come from, to learn from generations prior to me, even if I have criticisms of them. How would you say you have become the kind of person who can do that? Because it's not just kind of telling people, oh, hey, there might be things in your background. Maybe your parents, your grandparents, maybe the church you grew up in, maybe there were things that you could take from that, actually. Maybe they're salvageable parts of that tradition. But I think there's also a prior question of like, how do you have the humility? How do you have the ability to reflect on that well to to be able to hear that? Because I don't think it's just a question of like, oh, no, go back to your tradition, go back to your church and learn things. It's like, how do you do your own internal work yes. of how you feel about the place you came from? Or um, our friend Michael Ware yeah. has told me multiple times, you know, people are working out their own shame about their past. And it's it's really making it difficult for them to to learn from their own tradition or their grandparents or their parents because they're just ashamed of what they used to believe and they can't believe, you know, there's like five questions <laughs> that I just asked you in there. But how would you how would you say you've become the kind of person? Are there like ideas or practices or parts of your story that you would say, that's led me to the place where I can see these gifts in my tradition that I didn't see before. I can be the kind of person that can learn and grow from that. That's a tremendous question or five tremendous questions. <laughs> One of the things I'll say I've learned is I've learned how to grieve for especially people who come from contexts that justify heinous actions toward neighbors. The ability to grieve is something we don't always process. We want to fight and change but we don't want to mourn and grieve what were the sins of our forefathers and foremothers and our ancestors. We don't want to grieve that. And I've learned how to grieve because what, what I realized is all the mistakes that my parents made and the people who came before me made, I'm going to make mistakes too. <laughs> I've tried to before, and, and this is something I didn't do early on in this journey, but I've tried to change, especially over the past five, six years, is when I get upset about something, I first pause and ask the question, where have I been complicit in the very thing I'm angry at? And how have I allowed that to fester? And how hurtful is it when someone brings to light something I believe so strongly and practice so actively that has harmed them or others. And imagine those of us who are going back into our churches. And I pastor people who saw when I was born. I pastor people who <laughs> changed my diapers in kids ministry. Like I pastor those people now. And how shocking is it for me to come in and tell them everything you thought was wrong when this is what they believed for 50 and 60 and 70 years. And it's given me humility to not just grieve, but then also to be very patient with people as they navigate change. Change that happens quickly is dangerous. Now, it's not to say that things should not change quickly, but change that happens quickly is often shallow and superficial. And we saw this in 2020, where as great as the justice movement was, as great as it was that our friends were New York Times bestsellers, and as great as it was now, the polls tell us that people have a worse view of justice and race and reconciliation in society than they did before. So how did it go to that place? Well, this is it was shallow. 
It was quick change. It was emotional, but it wasn't truly deep, transformative soul work. And I think we have to be the type of people, especially as pastors who and ministry leaders, who encourage people to go deeply before they they speak loudly. You know, grieve, yeah. go deep into the internal work of your soul and find out the places that are creating the anger. See, I didn't realize that as much as I wanted to critique my tradition, and there's there's so many subtexts for that. I wanted to critique my tradition because we had a multi-ethnic church that my father uh, founded that was, you know, 5,000 members, multi-ethnic church. But we did, we had no conversations about justice, about equity, about racism. I mean, a Black-led multi-ethnic church, of course, we're going to talk about the, the stuff. And we never did. So I grew up thinking it didn't exist. And so I'm frustrated because I'm saying, oh, no, like, I, I want to critique and, and my therapist, she asked me, what's there? What's deeper about your childhood that you're not addressing? And I'm saying, no, it's righteous. It's No, what's deeper about your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your father and your mother that you're not addressing? What do you feel like you lost because they didn't share fully? And I had to take a step back and say, I, I didn't think about it like yeah. that. There's all kinds of things that are happening. And if we're not addressing and encouraging people to be healthy engagers of what has happened in the past to them. And as Dr. Christina Edmondson always says and has motivated me, if we're not encouraging people that there's enough grace in Jesus for us to face the truth, if we're not honest enough about that, and if we're not encouraging people for that, we'll have people who do what we think is best politically and still harm and still perpetuate the same cycles, which is why you get, and this is a tangent, I'm sorry, but this is why you get people who they, they deconstruct and then become fundamentalists. Yep. They're yep. deconstructing fundamentalism and then become fundamental. It's because you did, it's deeper than just simply some doctrine and some words. And it's deeper than that. And I think, you know, my tradition has encouraged me to go deep into the soul and to ask some hard questions and to confront some ways in which I'm disappointed and angry and I feel a sense of loss and regret and all the above. And I think that's a work I'm still doing. That's a work we're going to be doing for, for decades to come. That work is holy. That work is discipleship. And if you don't do that work, all the stuff you do politically and out in the public sphere, <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be shallow. It's going to be shallow. Tyler, that is so good. I was recently in a in a con an academic context where I heard someone giving this like very passionate speech about some theological issue. And the whole time they were talking, I was like, I think you're having a fight with your youth pastor yeah. and he is not in the room. <laughs> and like none of us are him. And I felt so kind of annoyed and frustrated and then later learned about this person, was in a face-to-face -face conversation with them and got a small glimpse of just how much that youth pastor really had hurt them and how deep the wound was for the church that they were coming from, from the pastor, from their family, from like even to this day, kind of the effects of all of that. And so on one hand, it was clarifying to me to go, gosh, I mean, I'm sure I'm doing that too, where the work I'm doing is like a fight with someone who's not here and I'm I am not conscious enough of it. But then it also helped to then go, oh, but the answer to that is not just to say, that's so annoying that you're having this fight right. with this youth pastor who's not in the room. It's to be like, no, take seriously the story that that's coming from and like do the work to deal with that. Can I say something to that? Because I think this is so important too. And watch this. People hold that, hold this 
And then they mock the emotional expression in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, not realizing when we come to church, we grieve. When we come to church, we lament. So they see us screaming and shouting and on the floor and not realizing we are grieving. It gave us permission when we have a situation like someone who we think is extremely harmful and dangerous gets elected to be the president of the United States. We can't change it. We feel powerless. We feel hopeless. And we're at the altar and all this emotion is happening. Now, what happens for the people that have no place to grieve and then have never been taught that your emotional expression is not offensive to God? And so what they do is they harbor and then what, what is suppressed now becomes bitterness and resentment and harms them and harms the people that they're trying to communicate to. And so I'm just saying for us. I'm so glad I've had many, many opportunities to go to different churches and honor them. I'm going to tell you the ability to go to church and weep and, and it's not weird. The ability to, for some people will randomly, and this, this has happened before. Some people randomly just scream and, and people are like, oh, that's so odd. That's disruptive. That's strange. And we say, it may not be your cup of tea and it may not be something you do. And I'm not saying you got to like it and enjoy it. I'm saying we know what they, what they've been through. So when they scream, we know that's grief and that's trauma and that's pain and they got to get it out. And so they need somebody to come and hug them and hold them and be around them and let them emotionally express. Now, once they emotionally express, then we got to give them a therapy. We got to get people walking with them. Mm-hmm. We gotta, you know, they can't just emotionally express and that's it. Yeah. But it's the step that a lot of evangelicals don't take because they're like, this is this is too disruptive. And so what do you have? All this unaddressed pain and trauma harbored in your body. And then when you speak, what happens? The vitriol comes out. It has nowhere else to go. I'm sorry. I just had to say like, that's the. No, I'm so glad that you did. That's such a good, and it's a good word too. It is a gift of the tradition that you are coming from, but then that gift can truly be a gift to other traditions to say like, that might not be normal in our church context, but like, what do we need to do to make our community a place where someone can weep and we are not disturbed by that? We're not like set off and and, and want to kind of put them away in a corner so we can keep doing our service. Because I do think you're so right. It's like the criticism from those places is this is overly emotional. But then these places are the places where the emotions are still playing a huge role in the way your church works. It's just a repressed, not good role. Exactly. So I appreciate that so much, Tyler. The last question I have for you, some of what you just said might be an answer to this, but I'm curious if you have other thoughts about this. A big part of what we're trying to do this season is give people practical ideas of what they can do to prepare. Maybe they're thinking, I'm going to sit at a Thanksgiving or a Christmas table. I'm going to be with family members that I disagree with politically. And I want to be faithful. I don't want to lie. I want to speak the truth, but I want to have relationships and figure out what's actually helpful to my community. Maybe they will be like me teaching Sunday school class in the fall on politics and wow. trying to navigate oh a bunch of relationships with oh people in our churches. Um, yeah, you Please. can pray for me Yes, that. I will. Um, I will. Or maybe they're just going like, I'm going to run into my neighbor or I'm going to go to a school board meeting or I'm going to be in my community in some capacity and I want to be faithful. I want to do things well, but I'm not trying to do what you just said of I have all the right politics lined up but I'm actually a mess and I'm still harming people. Is there anything you would say about like a practice they can adopt or a thing that they should consider doing or thinking or a relationship they should foster to prepare now? I mean, they'll hear this at the end of 2023. 
already in the swing of things, but especially for the whole next upcoming year, I don't want us to just, like you said, wait until it's right beforehand and start thinking about this, but like, what could we do now to prepare for those kinds of things? Cool. The first thing I would say is you have to enter into every conversation that you have and every conversation that you're going to have with the acceptance and the embrace that you are not the spirit of God. You do not have the power to change people. And this was so crucial for me because in 2014, 2015, I remember just agonizing over every word. It got to the place where I would just make Facebook posts and churches locally were having private meetings about my posts because people in their church, it had created conversation and questions for them. So they were having private meetings about what I said because it was getting shared and people were like, what do you think about this and that? And I remember agonizing with my friends and the people around me. How do I say this right? Like, how do I, how do I put it in the right terms? How do I use the data? How do I, and, and because words have always been my background and communication has always been the thing that God has given to me, I've always tried to place my words so well and so tightly. And so and to a certain extent, I, I started to realize when I did that, people still misrepresented it. No matter how much care I took, mm-hmm. they still misrepresented it. So I had to not say, oh, I'll be careless. What I had to actually do was embrace and accept I'm not the spirit of God and understand that every person that you're meeting that you believe is saying something harmful that you're trying to change. If that is the case, it is not a words or a thoughts or a information issue. It's a heart issue. And so it's so important for us to first off say, hey, I'm not the spirit of God, because what will happen is you'll think the holidays are a failure if you don't change your aunt or your uncle who's been saying racial slurs for two decades. And then now it's, you know, calling Obama, President Obama a Muslim. Like now, if you don't change, if you don't change that, then (laughs) what? Like that's not your, you don't have the power to do that. No matter how good you are, you don't have the power to do that. And so that embrace helps you to understand the principle of planting seeds and watering them. And here's two things that I would say are also crucial in, in the practical application. Once you've accepted that, number one can you repeat what they're saying back to them better than they said it to you? And it's like, well, how do you repeat stuff back to someone who has, I'm just throwing this out there because that may be, this may be a lot of people's experience. How do you repeat something back to somebody who's racist that's better than what they, you got to ask them, you got to find out what made them think this. So you have to ask them questions that, that get to the place of figuring out what encounter did you have And what situation did you have that's making you think and believe that your neighbors are evil, inferior, dangerous, violent, all these these tropes that are being fomented by the media, by mainstream media personalities and other people? What, What makes you think this? And getting to that place is the place of understanding with which to address the trauma and the pain that's causing them to react. Now, some people won't let you do that. But you have to get to a place where, especially if it's surface level issues, if you're arguing about healthcare, economics, or nobody's an expert in the room. So I need to have some humility to say, let me try to let me try to understand you better. Yeah. And let me also try to understand your argument and repeat it back to you in a better way than you said to me. And then finally, I think the second part of that is you have to appeal to love of neighbor. And this is the thing that if we're arguing about the back and forth of what policy works with this. And I've had to tell some people, hey, the best thing you say is, hey, I know people and I've had interactions with people who this directly affects. 
and the people who are most affected don't see it the way you see it. And so if someone were to come to you and say, me being a refugee, an immigrant, um, someone who has a different sexual orientation, someone who has um, a different ethnicity, if someone who is marginalized and most affected by this comes to you and says, hey, this affects me differently than how it affects you, and I see this differently, here's how I see it, how would you respond to that? And letting them wrestle with the fact that their thoughts are not simply thoughts, but their thoughts affect their neighbors. So then it takes you out of the equation and you fighting back and forth with, you know, uncle or aunt so-and-so or your cousin or your grandparents and saying, oh no, they've got these, these thoughts. And we even see this in, in uh black community as well. You go and we're trying to tell them and you, you bring your friends over and you, and they're, they're mocking your friends and doing all that. You're like, what? And you get, you get personal with it. And the reality is it's actually an opportunity for you to challenge them to love their neighbor better. And that's the deeper, this, the deeper work. The deeper work is not, I convince them that I'm right and they're wrong. The deeper work is I help them see their neighbor better and hopefully encourage them to love their neighbor as their self. And if they're believers, especially that commandment is likened to the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God. And if you're able to do that, that's a win in representation far more than you've convinced them to believe like you believe. Yes. And even just, I'm imagining having this conversation with some people in my life and thinking, gosh, asking that question of them would also force me to evaluate that question for myself in terms of like, ooh, suddenly I feel like a real hypocrite if I'm going to ask something like that of you and I can see in myself the ways that that's not, I'm not living that way or I wouldn't respond well this way or I, um, that's really, Tyler, that's really, really helpful. And I have to say this because I think it's so important. Don't try to win. Mm. It's the winning that's, oh, it's the problem. We want to win so bad. It's so Western. We want to win. It's a trap. Yeah. Yes. You can't, it's not about winning. This is why I try to tell people all the time. I'm like, you trying to, in every interpersonal conflict, relational conflict, if you're trying to win, you yes. will inevitably sacrifice your morals, your convictions, your values to exercise power and dominance over the person that you think you're at war with, rather than being the type of person that hey, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. So even if I lose, if I represented Jesus well, ultimately that's the most important thing. And it's hard in politics because the stakes are high, but you can't go in there trying to win. If that's your strategy, you've already lost. Tyler, that is such a good word to end on. That's really, um, and it forces, I think, us to ask, what is our goal? Like, if we're being honest, is it to win or is it to feel like I got a good word in, like I really told them something, you know, or I came off really good or or do I really want a better community to live in and I want them to be involved in that and I care about their souls and the souls and bodies of the people in my community. Thank you so much. The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Myla Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Toldson, and I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. 
don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel. And leave a rating and review to support the podcast. God.